Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Ellen Xavier, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks for joining. The place I always wanted to be. Well, you are there right now, and for the next roughly 45 minutes, you will be uh, in the center of the universe. It's getting hot already. Exactly. Uh, well, no, it's it's not too hot here, but it but it does mean that uh, we will be focused on uh, a bit of your story. Uh, and so I guess we should mention you and I connected through Andrew Ting. Andrew and I work together, and you and Andrew know each other from college. George Washington University, we both teach at George Washington Law. He teaches startups, and I teach the sports moot court competition. I'm a coach. And then I teach sports law at GW Business School. Uh, why uh, such a heavy focus on sports for you? Well, that's my area of, of passion for my entire career. So I'm a sports attorney by trade. Uh, jack of all trade, master of none. Well, I imagine your love for all things sports started when you were much younger. No, no, I wanted to be, uh, I did sports, but I wasn't any more than anyone else. I ran track, played soccer, skied. I was a good athlete, not a great athlete, and went through college thinking I was going to be an international lawyer. And then somewhere along the line, I got into the sports side of law. It interests me because it's so complex and partly because being um, a woman in the field was at the time so rare, I felt that we needed to have some voices in the space that weren't present. Is that what led you initially to sports and law, sports law, or or was that after you had chosen that path and you saw an opportunity there? You know, I think it was a combination of my friends in college were going pro in the NFL, and uh, my best friend was being sought out by agents. So I had firsthand knowledge of what that agent recruitment process looked like. And I was around all the athletes and working out and I was competing, not for the university, but on my own competitions. And so it was a natural progression. I used to go to different seminars on sports and entertainment. And at one seminar that I went to at Howard University, I biked over and met the woman that worked at the NFL Players Association. And then she asked me if I wanted to intern. So that's how I ended up in sports. <laughs> and, and at that time when you were interning at NFLPA, were there any uh, female agents representing players? No, no. I mean, there was only like seven or 10 of us at the Players Association total. And we were a really small organization, just wearing multiple hats. There were three attorneys. Uh, they were all male. I worked in the agent department and my boss was an economist. And we 
began to help the agents negotiate their contracts. So I was able to read through the contracts, understand the leverage points, what the agents should come into the room with, and develop across the board knowledge of every position and every team. And from there, I started to realize that a lot of players were being taken advantage of and the agents were basically stealing money from them. And so I began to help some of those players directly. And that's when I began to realize, you know, maybe this is something I can help. And then one of the players asked me if I would be their agent and the rest is history. Uh, that player, I, I'm guessing, had maybe been burned before or since that there were a lot of agents that weren't sincerely looking out for their best interest. And he, I imagine he uh, viewed you as somebody he could trust. Right, because he had been calling me and asking me questions and that agent had him sign a power of attorney. He invested in things uh, on behalf of the player and the money was completely gone. And so there was a series of episodes and it began to realize that players are really good at performing their sport in their career, but they don't have access to how to set up a bank account, how to purchase a house, how to deal with finances. And so that's where I felt because of my upbringing and my educational background that I could help. And I didn't really think about being the first woman, I really didn't even know. But when I filled out the agent certification, when I left the Players Association, I realized that the application said all he's, and I had to change it to she. And at the time I went to my my boss, head of the PA, uh, Gene Upshaw, uh, a famous Raiders, a player and I said you know Gene I, I think we need to change the he to he she and he's like oh sounds like a good idea and so really the press made a big deal of it I went to work for another agent nobody said anything but when I ended up going on my own at 26 uh, lots of papers began to realize oh there's this woman and she's representing NFL players and she's never played football. And how is that possible? Yeah, I think, you know, probably better than most. Uh, You don't have to play the sport to be able to represent the players of the sport. Well, I was looking at a lot of the agents and they weren't in shape. So (laughs) I was running marathons and triathlons and I was keeping up with my players. And so I thought at least I have the mentality of a, an elite athlete, number one, I have the knowledge coming from the PA, I have the law degree. And so I don't think they have anything on me. And suiting up, I remember I went to one college and asked them if I could suit up in the pads and the helmet. And it was heavy. It was definitely very heavy equipment. Um, but I don't, I don't see... In, in our profession, in the law, we don't look at it as, oh, if we're not in that industry, we can't represent that industry. So the things that I had to be good at was asking for money, negotiating, and understanding the regs and the law. 
And none of that involved a helmet. Or shoulder pads. Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier that sports law is complex. What makes it so complex? Well, there's no such thing as sports law. And that's that's sort of the complexity. You are either a expert in intellectual property or stadium property, real property, Title IX, agency, antitrust, contracts. So all of my legal friends, they have an expertise. And it's not that I don't understand some of the things, but they take a much deeper dive. And for me, the concept of contracts was most attractive because the thought of starting with a blank piece of paper and getting two people together in the meeting of the minds on their goal and the thought of signing the contract and never looking at the contract again because the relationship was done well from the start, that to me and remains heaven. How often does that happen? A lot. I think the most successful contracts I've made are never looked at once they're signed. Yeah, that is heaven. I, I imagine for somebody who does what you do. Uh, look, I, I want to come back to you being uh, the first female uh, NFL sports agent. I have that correct, right? I mean, the way I describe that is accurate. Uh, can we go back to where you grew up? So I grew up in a small town in New Jersey, Maywood, New Jersey, sort of like Andy Griffith, Maple, you know, small downtown, everyone knows each other. My parents were my softball coaches. My mom was PTA president and a teacher, never brought money down to the stores, just signed for it. Everybody knew who I was. I was the third child. So had to clean up my brother and sister's rep. And, um, you know, it, it was really an oasis, but we were eight miles from New York City. Were you in Bergen County? Yes. My, my wife's from Bergen County. Small world. You yeah, married a mom. tough woman. Yeah. She, uh, you, you, yeah. I, I have a great appreciation for women from uh, Bergen County, New Jersey. Uh, she's a firecracker. There's no question about that. And her town was two square miles. Was that like Maywood? One mile by one mile. Yeah. So, yeah, she she loves uh, where she grew up, and she has awesome memories of her of her childhood growing up in that part of the world. Right. And my dad worked in the city. We had a family business. So for me to say I grew up in New York City is is also accurate because I would go into our business I'd clean up, sweep, help, and we went to the theater and we went to restaurants and and so forth. So I sort of had the best of both worlds. And then we we had a beach house in Belmar, which is the South Jersey shore. And so in the summers, my mother being a teacher, we would take off and spend at the Jersey shore. So I I'm a true Jersey girl. Yeah, my, my wife reminds me all the time that she's from Jersey. Uh, what brought you to the University of Maryland? Well, 
you know, in high school, I worked in the guidance department and I was shelving back then. They would send you a book for each university and I was shelving the books and I was looking through Maryland and I thought, you know, this is kind of good. I want to be a lawyer. It's near Washington, D.C., but not in the city. It's got a big campus, uh, beautiful cherry blossoms on the cover. And I thought, well, I want to be in the radius of three, four hours from home, just enough that they can't surprise me, but just close enough if I have to come home. And applied to various schools in that radius, and Maryland was where I landed. I stayed there for three years. I graduated in three years uh, with a management marketing emphasis, and, uh, and then went on to law school at American University in Washington, D.C. Yeah, American uh, yeah, is in D.C. proper, right? It is, and it's one of the top international law schools. And so that's sort of where I was headed, international law. And then you, you were diverted based on your internship. Is that right? I was diverted based on a bike ride to some seminar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, okay, cool. So uh, Maryland, was it something about Maryland besides the fact that it was within three or four hours uh, and it was near D.C.? Was there something else about Maryland that attracted you? I think, I think the business school was well-respected. I'm not even sure I'd get in now. Business school is a lot more difficult to get in. I wanted a big school atmosphere. When I was in high school, I felt very claustrophobic because I had grown up with a lot of the people. So I wanted diversity and Maryland offered all those things for me. Were you a sports enthusiast in terms of being a fan of some of the sports in Maryland? So my, my first year of Maryland, I had the chance to model for a insert into the college magazine called the Diamondback. And apparently myself and my girlfriend got picked and we modeled with the quarterbacks of the team and we became friendly with them. They lived in the dormitory next to my dormitory. They ate with us. We, they didn't have special training tables back then. And I became very good friends with them and um, one in particular, and all of them went on to play in the NFL. And I, I studied a lot. So I, I was finishing up in three years. And my one friend that went to Maryland, he was in the business school as well. So we both had classes together. Uh, you said you, you got picked to, to do that uh, Diamondback uh, photo shoot. Did you apply or did were you discovered? Well, I had done some modeling growing up. I've done some bathing suit modeling. I've managed a bathing suit store at the Jersey Shore. So we had done benefits where we helped for different things on campus. And I worked at the 
rec center. I also worked at the racetracks and we did a lot of promotional work, uh, my girlfriend and I. And so I believe my memory collect me, we were selected and we were informed. And at first I wasn't sure I really wanted to do it, but we thought, okay. And I, I, I wore a bathing suit. So it was, um, it was an opportunity. Now I was, I was competing in bodybuilding at the time. So I was in really good shape. Bodybuilding, meaning you were building a lot of muscle mass. Oh no, I competed in bodybuilding competitions while I was in college. I, I have to ask, how were those competitions judged? So um, they were outside entities. Think about like at the time, Rachel McLeish, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bev Francis were the biggest in the business. And so there were competitions around the DC area. And, uh, you know, I got into it because I, I dated a guy in high school that was a competitive bodybuilder. And to me, it was, it was a way for me to move from being a skinny track runner to someone that could shape, um, what I wanted to be and the strength and how I wanted to, to be physically, because I think, and I still work out every day that in order for you to be at your optimum, that it's sort of like a three-legged stool. If your physical body is healthy and your mental spiritual body is healthy and you're intellectually feeding the knowledge side, then you're, you're at that wooden stool and the most sturdy you can be. And then your adversary is going to have a tough time tipping you over. Uh, when did you come up with that mindset? Was it, were you in college? I, I feel like I've had that for a long time. I felt that being in balance was really critical. And probably my freshman year of college, I thought that I needed to be healthier and and move towards that direction. Yeah, the reason I asked the sports uh, fan question is, uh, I think maybe the most famous athlete to ever uh, attend Maryland is Lynn Bias, and I, I don't know how that affected you as a as a as an alum. Yeah, so I didn't go to Maryland. Because I wasn't a fan of sports, so. Uh, I enjoyed going to the football games. I went to a few basketball games, a few lacrosse games, but I really enjoyed being an athlete as opposed to, and I appreciated watching athletes perform at a high level, but I was one of them. And so I didn't look at them as something to idolize. I felt it was something that we were going to learn from each other. Fair enough. So when you became uh, an agent and you were working with the other agent and, and it wasn't widely known that you were working with that agent, or at least not as widely known as you eventually uh, were, uh, did I, I don't know how to how else to ask this other than uh, were were men uh, polite and thoughtful or were they maybe what I would assume they were being uh, 
chauvinistic pigs. Or, or, well, or I'm sure you, you encountered both. Yeah. So when I first started looking to work for an agency, I asked some of the big agents that I had helped in their negotiations to see if they had a position. And none of them would hire me beyond a secretary. So I felt I'd gone to law school and being a secretary was something I've done, wasn't going to do now. And so the concept of working with someone that had a lot of Penn State players and had a good connection there, and then I was going to be the director of the marketing side as well, really intrigued me because I had a marketing background. And not a lot of lawyers have marketing as well as uh, political, you know, poli-sci kind of thought process. And so when I was at the law firm, one of the partners um, assaulted me at night. And I don't think I ever told the other partners or the head of the firm. And I just went in and said, hey, I, I think it's time I move on. And and that's what that's what I did. So I left that firm and then I realized, wow, I'm, I'm on my own. And I moved back home with my dad and he set up my office with two filing cabinets and a door and said, get to work. Uh, I, that is awful that you were assaulted. I, I, yeah, I won't ask you any details about that. But that's uh, uh, ridiculous. Uh, your dad sounds like he won dad of the year a few times. <laughs> well, I had a great mom. Uh, she passed away in, in 1987 before I graduated law school. So I would like to say that he is, uh, he's a character. He, he has pluses and minuses, but his greatest plus is that he married my mom. Sounds like, sounds like a great couple. And I'm, Sorry, your mom left way too soon. Yeah, they were an incredible force. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Uh, so how long were you representing uh, NFL players? Did you do that for a, a while? I did. I did it for 18 years. In 18 years, uh, did it get better as it went, or was it pretty much the same year after year? Well, some of the things were redundant. I mean, you recruit. You get a player, you they mess up, you try to fix it, you buy their house, you set up their bank account, uh, they have multiple girlfriends, they have a wife, they get in trouble. So those things become redundant. And by the 18th year, I felt, you know, babysitting is good, but I think I have more more to do in this space. And so my last player was Troy Brown on the Patriots, who is well known for his performance in a Super Bowl. Yeah, I think he won MVP one Super Bowl, right? He did. So you have a Super Bowl MVP that you've represented. That's really cool. <laughs> so Troy was a friend of mine that was a scout, said, you need to go and look at this kid. He's from Marshall. Nobody's looking at him. And because a lot of players, when I recruited them, if they had a girlfriend, they felt threatened by me that 
this this gentleman Troy he had a girlfriend but she was a rock star he ended up marrying her she she I think she was pre-med or something of that sort and so she was comfortable in her skin and didn't feel threatened by my presence as as everybody should yeah yeah I'm glad she wasn't because it sounded like it worked out really well for you so you you found Troy through uh, somebody else, and you went down to Marshall and got a cold visited him. Or you nobody know? else nobody else was visiting him. <laughs> so I took him out to dinner, him and his girlfriend, and met with the coaches. And he's like, "Let's do this." Was he drafted? Um, yes, very late. They don't even have those many rounds anymore. And um, and we signed him with the Patriots, and he he stayed there for his entire career. Yeah, he had a fantastic career. He's probably a top ten Patriot of all time. I think so. He's he's got a warm personality. He's he's not that big. He's about a little bit about my size. So. Yeah, which I imagine makes him pretty darn tough to be able to play with uh, the Giants to play in the NFL. He can run fast. So it sounds like he, he's your most well-known uh, client. No, no, he wasn't my most well-known player, but um, I'd like to think that all my players were important. And um, I, I'm still friendly with many of my players and they've gone on to do great things. And that's important to me too. Uh, what's the most uh, number of players you've had at any one time? Well, when I worked with the agent, uh, we had about 40-something players. It was Tim and Noah. Um, I mean, we had a lot of players. And at, at the time, Penn State was rolling out so many players, Shane Conlon and a lot of Buffalo Bills players. Um, my best friend in college was Frank Reich, and I did some work with him, and now he's the Colts um, coach. And so... I, I'm not one to talk about all my players, but I also represented some coaches. And as you know, after I left the NFL, I represented some of the greatest Olympic athletes and extreme athletes in the in the world. But yeah. there, but but I don't really talk too much about that fan side because I don't have that in me. No, you're, you're, you're probably uh, better off not having that in you. Uh, so the reason I asked the most you had at any one time, 40 for the firm, and that, that's what, a handful of people representing or supporting those 40? There's like three of us, um, but I did all the marketing and the contracts and the sponsorship agreements. And then for myself, I'd say 16. That's a lot. What, what's the right number? Well, it depends how big you want to get. If you want to build it so another company comes and buys you or you merge with an agency, that's great. I never wanted to do that. So I think the best number is the one your clients say that you're okay. They're, they're, they're helping you grow. And my athletes always recommended me and helped me grow. So I have to think that they had their best interest in mind as well. I, I won't ask you a lot about Frank Reich, but you did mention his name. He seems like maybe one of the best people on earth. 
He really does. Wasn't he a minister at one point before he came back into coaching? Yeah, I mean, he was my best friend in college. So, did you know each other before college? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, Frank Reich. Yeah, my best friend was not uh, an NFL coach in college. That's that's really cool. I so you when you were part of the NFLPA, you. Uh, I'm reading here, it says you were a coordinator with, for the Native American Project. What was that? So Clark Gaines, who was also a New York Jets player, uh, worked at the Players Association, and he started this foundation where the retired NFL players would go to Native American reservations and bring skill sets to the Native American youth. And we partnered with Johns Hopkins. They have a Native American center that deals on the health issues of Native Americans, which they have the highest suicide, the highest diabetes. Uh, they're, they're not doing well health-wise, and a lot of it has to do with our neglect. And so my role was really to help set up the camps help bring the athletes in. And most most of those athletes were retired athletes because they had the time. But the tricky part was we used to fly in these very small prop planes into the reservation and the players are two, 300 pounds. And I used to have to get all their weights. I had to get the weights of their luggage <laughs> and then I'd have to figure out who gets on what plane. And so once I got past that, I remember very distinctly, we had two tribes at one camp and the youth just love it. But we also bring the parents in because then Hopkins comes in and teaches them health issues and concerns. And so while we're teaching them life skills on the basketball court, the parents are simultaneously, you know, learning. And I remember there was a tribal argument between the women in the kitchen. And Clark Gaines said to me, well, you need to go and resolve that. Otherwise, we're not going to eat today. And I, I still say that was my hardest negotiation ever. Uh, yeah, I, I can I can see you trying to figure out who should go on what plane. Uh, <laughs> were these like six seaters? Maybe? Um, close. It was about twelve. Yeah, I, I, I'd be afraid to put two big guys on the same plane, even if they are equally distributed. Yeah, I definitely went on the flight with the lightest. All right, so uh, you you mentioned before we started recording that, that you have your own podcast. Can you tell us about that? Yes, so I am not launched yet, but I have some podcasts in the bank um, working on esports and the law. And while we cover esports, I do bring in other types of sports and how they're going to impact the digital space, the gaming space, because you still have the NBA, but the NBA 2K. You, You have the NFL and then what they're going to do in the metaverse. So I don't see this as solely esports at the professional level, but I see this as, you know, video gaming and how that will have a place in sports. Yeah, when did uh, the notion of esports become a thing? Was that in the last 10, 15 years? 
So about eight, nine years ago, I had some gamers call me and mm -hmm. ask me to create a gamer association because I had done several in the past. And literally, I'm on the phone with like five or six guys from Brooklyn, New York. And I say, what do you do? <laughs> and they're like, we play games. I'm like, call me back in a few years. <laughs> and, they, and they did. And they did. And, and so esports has really been a big thing, I guess, probably before the pandemic, but it became huge during the pandemic, I imagine. Right. So there are people that have been in the space for 20 years. Uh, so I think what you're starting to realize is, first of all, the revenue stream. But most importantly, there's a lot of people that work in traditional sports that are moving over and taking their knowledge into the esports space and applying that structure that they're used to in that space. And so that's where I think for me, it became on the radar screen that there are cases involving esports. There are athletes that don't have good working conditions. Um, and what does this mean as we create a new sport? Is it a sport or is it entertainment? And as we create it, do we have to make the same mistakes that we made with the other sports? Yeah, I imagine a lot of what applies to uh, the analog physical space for sports uh, also works in esports. Right. You still have spinal, neck, corporal tunnel syndrome. You still have doping, what they call e-doping. You still have match fixing. You have micro fixing. You have hacks. And so think deflate gate. And so we just call them different things but they're equivalent to what other sports may have. I think I understood everything you just said, except micro fixing. What is that? So a micro bet would be what is for a football player would be, are they going to wear the high socks or the low socks? And I'm going to bet 10 bucks on it. Are they going to pass or not pass? It's not who's going to win and who's going to lose and the point spread it's micro bets. And so, I think now that gambling has become legal in many jurisdictions, that the micro bets may even surpass the win and lose bets. Yeah, I mean, I, I happen to have a, a gambling app on my phone. I, I probably gamble once every two months. Uh, and it's 10 bucks a game kind of thing. But yeah, I, there are a lot of what I would call prop bets uh, or what I think sounds like you're calling micro bets. Yeah, and they're literally you imagine the bet and they probably already have it as a wager. Right. Yeah. What outfit is the person going to wear? What racket are they going to use? Yeah. And I can see it's, it's easy to fix those sorts of things, right? Cause you just leak as, as the athlete, what you're going to do. Right. But in esports, it could be who's going to shoot first, right? What kind yeah. of skin are they going to have on their gun when they come out? So it's much harder to detect fixing because it's not it's so micro that you don't know because they still could win the match but they're winning money under the table from these micro bets gotcha all right so 
one of the most intriguing things about your background is you were part of uh, a task force trying to get breakdancing into the Olympics. And I have to admit, Ellen, I thought, I, I know breakdancing started, or at least I believe it started in New York. Um, I, I imagine at some point it became international. It obviously has because 2024 Olympics will have breakdancing. How did you get involved in that? My son. Oh, my really? Son, my son is a breakdancer. And we have a studio that teaches breakdancing here in my hometown. And went to it. My son started breaking. And I went to the instructor studio owner. And I said, well, what are these competitions? Are you a sport? No, 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 we're an art. And I was like, well, that's what the skateboarders said to me. But they became a sport because the X Games were created by ESPN and Disney. And so we began talking about it. And I drew out what a structure would look like if we moved it into a sport, because that's all I know. And then I drew out the different avenues that we could develop to get it into the Olympics, the World Games, the Pan American Games and the like. And it was just a collision of two people uh, talking about it. And then we created an association because I had done that three times before and then got the community engaged in it. And everybody took tiny pieces of it and moved it forward. And so now that it's in the games for Paris, 2024 it's also in the world games in alabama for 2022 was in the youth olympics in 2018 in buenos aires so we're we're on our way is your son of an age where he would compete no my son is a social dancer so he enjoys the aspect of dancing as opposed to competing and then i i imagine it's similar to gymnastics in that there are judges that are giving scores based on the performance. Right. So developing a scoring system was a critical component that could demonstrate to viewers what they're being scored on. One of the hardest things with ice skating is can you figure out the scoring system? But can you talk more about the scoring system? So there's several scoring systems out there that have been used by breakers for years. And even prior to that, it was just, which crew were you from? And you would have different OGs, uh, original gangsters out there, uh, you know, selecting their crew to win. And so it was interesting. I wouldn't say it was filled with conflict of interest, maybe, but that's how it started on the street. And so I would think of it very much as there are certain uh, steps in, in breakdancing that are considered footwork. There's other elements that are on the floor. Then there's something called power moves, which, you know, when you talk about a backspin and headstands. And so there's different areas that you can click off and be scored in as make sure you touch each point. And then there's transitions. How do you move from one move to another move? So in that sense, it is a lot like ice skating and floor exercise of gymnastics. And then there's a style. 
every breaker has their own stick. And what does that mean for their point score? Yeah, so there's a degree of difficulty, it sounds like, and then artistic interpretation of, of how they actually uh, execute. Right, and they're given a piece of music. And so how they interpret that piece of music becomes part of their score. Are you going to Paris in 2024? I am. So, And you're primarily going to watch the breakdancing competition. That's it. That's amazing. All right. So, any uh, idea how many countries will uh, have com competitors? Don't know at this point, but in the Olympic rules, you must have eight to compete eight different countries. And I don't know a country that doesn't have breakdancing. It's that big now. It's huge. I had no idea. I, I guess I've, I've just been a football, basketball, baseball guy for so long. I had no idea. Well, look at it this way. It really gives an opportunity for kids that don't want to do traditional sports, have an artistic side, mm -hmm. and want to develop and blend the two together with the music and the hip-hop community. It's also a style thing, what you wear and how that expresses yourself. And so if you think about kids today, they really want to express themselves and maybe have less rules on their uniform and what shoes they have to wear and so forth. Given that you are uh, a professor at George Washington and you work at both the law school and the business school, this may be a question that you don't have an answer for, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. My daughter, my middle kid is going to George Washington this fall. Any advice for her and or me as her parent? Well, I hope to meet her. And I think your first year, you should take the standard classes. But if you have time, you should sit in on some other classes that you're thinking about. Get to know your professors in the space. A lot of the adjunct professors work in the profession. And so really staying connected with them gives you a network. Um, there's a lot of full-time faculty that has research projects and grad assistants, and that's a great opportunity to expand your knowledge in a, in a specific area. And just have fun. I think one of the things that I wish I did a little bit more of in college was maybe go four years instead of three and have a little bit more fun. Well, that's, that's part of the college experience for a lot of kids, right? It is. And this, this group of kids that went through the pandemic, their whole social scene and how the pandemic has impacted them will definitely be viewed by the faculty and what that means and what they're behind in and what they've excelled in. Uh, I, I really appreciate your answer, and it it really speaks to networking is really, really important uh, as you enter into adulthood, and, and college is a great uh, place to, to really get serious about that. I also- it's, You know, it's the cheap place to make a mistake, and colleges have, we have pitch competitions where you can pitch a business, we give you thousands and up to millions, and it's the opportunity to make a mistake and not have to pay the consequences. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I should have mentioned that my daughter also has uh, designs and she's been talking about this since she was a little kid. She wants to be a lawyer. So what's great about D.C. is there is 
uh, GW law, but there's also other law schools in the area. And so you can monitor, like I went to Howard to, to meet and talk about sports law. She could bike over to Georgetown and go to a session there on a topic she likes. And so she really needs to take advantage of the entire community and what they do and what sessions they have, as opposed to only what's happening at her, you know, her university. Yeah, it's a great point. And there are lots of wonderful schools within uh, what a uh, 20 minute Uber ride. Uh, just a Metro ride. We don't, you know, yeah. you don't need an Uber. You just need a Metro card. Yeah, you, you can tell I'm, I'm not from a Metro <laughs> kind of place. Uh, yeah, I'm from Richmond where we either drive or uh, take an Uber. Yeah, but the Metro extends well into Virginia these days. Same, I imagine, in Maryland. Right. She can go to George Mason, Georgetown, AU, Catholic, all the way up to Maryland, easily on a Metro card. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. All right, last couple of topics, uh, Ellen. Uh, we're, we're right at 45, and you said 45 to 50, so here we go. This is an odd question. It's kind of out of place, but we ask most of our guests this question. You're a talk show host. It's a, it's a one day or one night only. Uh, you get to invite three guests, one female, one male, uh, and one musical group or musical soloist. They can be alive or dead. They can be famous, not famous. Uh, it can be your, for your entertainment. It could be for the world's entertainment. It can be thought-provoking. It's whatever you want it to be. Who are your three guests? Dead or alive. Dead or alive. I guess one would be my mother. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, musical, Joan Jett. Okay. I'm from Jersey, so Joan Jett, yeah. Do you, you, do you want to interview her and listen to her perform or, or both? <laughs> I've, done, I've, I've listened to her perform before, so I, I just think she has a great story. And what was the last one? Not uh, music. Not music. So you get, gave us a female and you gave us music. Last one is a male guest. Hmm. I guess Arthur Ashe. Oh, he's from my hometown. He's from Richmond. Yeah. He, he's, a, he's a great answer. Uh, what a fantastic human being he was and, what, what a lot of courageous things he accomplished in his, uh, his way too short life. That's a uh, great trio there. I think you'd have a hit on your hands. Might get into dessert too. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question, just, uh, or last uh, thoughts. Uh, tell us about your family. So my immediate family, I have a son that's 16 and you already know he's a break dancer, skateboarder, lacrosse player, getting into all kinds of things. Um, my husband works for the Department of Defense, and that's all I can tell you. And he's from Kentucky, so don't hold it against him. But my family is also, we have a family business. We're Cluster Jewelry in New York, and my dad and brother are on the Antique Roadshow. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And um, my sister has done Macy's Christmas windows and she works in the family business as well. And so if you have a family business, you can never leave it. So yeah, apparently not. How long has the business been around? 
a hundred years. Wow, that's a really long time. So you're what third or fourth generation? Yes, third generation, and not sure if it's going to go fourth, but we'll see. But either way, I think you know, always a Jersey, New York, and I love Maryland where I live and Washington D.C. area. So I feel like I've had the best of all worlds and. I have a great extended family. I have really great friends and primarily girlfriends that have been in the sports space that we just connect because we know what we've been through. So thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was an easy conversation. Definitely didn't have to prep. And I welcome any questions down the line and maybe we'll touch base in a few years and I'll be doing something else. We, we should absolutely touch base and I'm going to keep in touch just because my daughter's going to, uh, to DC and she's one of my babies. And so I, I worry about her, but yeah, any, yeah, uh, just, just, just have her, um, email me and we'll make sure she comes to my class and says hi. And she knows just in case she gets in trouble, she has a friend that's a lawyer. <laughs> I, I don't anticipate she's going to get any legal trouble, but yeah, it's nice to know that. Awesome. Ella, well, thank you so much for doing this, and I appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Take care, Paul. Right, see you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.